reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be together this morning. Appreciate this opportunity that we have to be together, this opportunity that we have to spend time in worship and to spend time in Bible study. What a blessing that is. You have your Bible with you this morning. I'd love for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we've been going over the last four weeks. This is the fifth week now that we're spending some time in Matthew chapter 5. And this morning, our thoughts are going to be focused on verse number 7. So if you turn there with me, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be studying together in verse number 7. This morning, we're continuing our trip through the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. We're continuing to ask and to allow Jesus to provide an answer to the question, how can we experience true happiness? How can we experience true blessing in this life? Before we go any further, I think we need to take just a second to talk about the structure of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Jesus is the master teacher. Jesus is the communicator of communicators. He is the teacher of teachers. When we read through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, these are not random traits or random characteristics that Jesus is just throwing out on the table as they come to his mind. This is not off the cuff by Jesus. When we look at the Beatitudes, they have a very precise, they have a very exact structure to them. When you look at the first four Beatitudes that we've covered over the last four weeks in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, they all have to do with our relationships with God. Have you noticed that? They actually build on top of one another in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. It all begins in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Can you see it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. As we talked about five weeks ago, we are to live lives of spiritual poverty. We are to live lives where we recognize who we are without God. We are spiritually bankrupt if we don't have God. That's where it all starts. That's the foundation. That's where it starts to build. And then we move to verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. When we recognize who we are without God, we're going to mourn over the sin that's present in our lives. The sin that's present in our life is going to break our hearts because it breaks God's heart. And when it breaks our hearts, we're going to remove that sin from our lives. Verse number 5, blessed are the meek. Whenever we're mourning over our sin and we mourn over it to the point that we remove it in our lives, we then have to have the meekness. We then have to have the humility to receive God's word into our lives, to receive his will into our hearts. Then you go to verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm living a life of spiritual poverty. And because I'm living a life of spiritual poverty, I'm mourning over the sin in my life. When I remove the sin, I have to replace it with something else. So I'm going to have the meekness and the humility to receive God's Word into my heart. Well, how does that change the way that I live? How does that change the decisions that I make? How does that change my priorities? I'm going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Can you see how they build on top of one another? 
In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, these are four Beatitudes that Jesus is teaching us to help us experience true happiness, true blessing in life. They all have to do with our relationships with God. But then this morning, as we begin in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, and then the next four weeks, we work to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12, we're going to transition just a little bit from talking about our relationships with God to talking about our relationships with others. As Christians, we cannot isolate our relationships with God from our relationships with others. We cannot isolate how we respond to God with how we react to other people. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, Jesus teaches us how to interact with other people. As humans, Jesus teaches us how we are supposed to treat other humans. We're going to begin with what we read just a few moments ago in Matthew 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Whenever we study the teachings of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark, mercy is a really big deal. Mercy is important. Mercy is significant to Jesus. Let me show that to you. Two different times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 9 and verse 13 and Matthew 12 and verse 7, Jesus quotes the words of Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 to the self-righteous and hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Is worship important? Is worship significant to us as followers of Jesus? There's no doubt about it. Worship is important. Worship is significant. In fact, what we are gathered to do this morning, what we are doing right now, is one of the most important things that we're going to do throughout the entire week. But is there something that Jesus teaches us that's more important than worship? Is there something that Jesus teaches us that's more important than sacrifice? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God is not saying that He doesn't want your worship. God is not saying that He doesn't want your sacrifice. What He is saying is He doesn't want your worship if you're not going to be merciful to other people. What Jesus is communicating there is why should we sacrifice to God? Why should we spend time and worship to Him if mercy's not going to be a big deal in our lives because it's a big deal to Jesus? Go over to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Once again, Jesus is speaking to the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. You can see that at the beginning of the verse. In this verse, He points out a problem with them. They emphasize the small details of the Old Testament law but they missed the main ideas. They missed what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law right alongside of justice, right alongside of faithfulness. What is one of the weightier matters of the law according to Jesus? It's mercy. Mercy is a big deal. Mercy is important. Mercy is significant to Jesus. So as we talk about the topic of being merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This morning, I want us to ask two questions. And we're going to spend the majority of our time in this first question, providing a definition. What does being merciful mean? Maybe that's a word that we use a lot. It's a word that we hear a lot, but we don't quite know what it means. Have you ever seen two brothers fighting with one another? One of them might have the other one in a headlock. What do they cry to let them go? Mercy. 
Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're the one in the headlock. Maybe you're the one giving the headlock. Not sure where you've been in that situation. But we use this word a lot. It's a common word. We hear it in sermons. We hear it in Bible classes. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to show and extend mercy to people in life? Well, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to turn with me to Luke, the 10th chapter. Luke chapter 10, we're going to have the slides of the verses up on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along in your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. You know, there are a lot of different scriptures that we could go to. There are a lot of different sections that we could study that teach us what it means to be merciful and what it looks like to extend mercy to other people, but I don't think there's one that's better than this one. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It's a parable that we oftentimes call the parable of the Good Samaritan. When we begin in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, we find that Jesus is having a conversation with a lawyer. The lawyer is actually the one who starts the conversation. When we hear the word lawyer, we automatically picture somebody in a suit standing up in a courtroom, don't we? That's not this kind of lawyer. This lawyer would have been a Jewish male who was an expert in the Old Testament law. He was an expert in the scriptures that they had from God at that time. And so he comes up to ask Jesus a question in verse number 25. But notice this question is not coming from pure motives. The Bible says that he's asking this question to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? With that question, he wants to back Jesus into the corner. With that question, he wants to put Jesus to the test. So Jesus responds in verse 26 like he oftentimes does in the Gospels. Especially whenever people are standing opposed to him, trying to put him to the test. Jesus puts him in the hot seat. Jesus responds to his question with two other questions. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. Jesus says, what does the Bible say? What do the Scriptures teach? How do you read it? And He gives His answer in verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those are two commandments. One taken from the book of Deuteronomy. One taken from the book of Leviticus. You are to love God with everything that you have. And you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus acknowledges in verse 28 that He answers that question correctly. He says, you have answered correctly. You have answered rightly. Everything in our lives comes back to those two commands, don't they? Love God with your entire being. Love God with every fiber that you have. But what did we say a little bit earlier about the Beatitudes? We can't isolate our love for God from our love for other people. These two commands, obedience to these two commands, Jesus says, produces life. Love God, love your neighbors, you love yourself. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. Right there, the conversation could have been over. Jesus and the lawyer could have went their separate ways, but in verse 29, the conversation is prolonged. The lawyer asks another question, but this time it's from a different motivation. In this question, he's not trying to put Jesus to the test. Instead, in verse 29, he wants to justify himself. The emphasis of this question is not on Jesus, backing Jesus into a corner. The emphasis of this question is on him. 
what exists in his heart, what exists in his mind. Wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Okay, I I get what the Bible says. I can read that. I'm supposed to love my neighbor just like I love myself. But Jesus, who is my neighbor exactly? More than likely, this lawyer believed that his neighbor was those who were like him. Those who believed what he believed. Those who looked like him. Those who had the same kind of lifestyle that he had. Those who were a part of the same religion that he was. And so wanting to justify himself in that... He says, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who's my neighbor? I'm only supposed to love people who are like me, right? People who believe what I believe, and they look how I look, and they worship how I worship. Jesus responds to that question, and he responds to really those stereotypes and prejudices with a story that begins in verse 30. Jesus talks about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That trip from Jerusalem to Jericho was not only very strenuous where you gained a lot of elevation, but it was also very dangerous. Along this road, there were caves, and robbers would hide inside of those caves. Have you ever been in a cave before? If you have, then you know. You can see those clearly who are on the outside, but nobody can see you on the inside of the cave because it's so dark. So these robbers would hide inside of the cave and as they watched a person walking down the road, all of a sudden they would jump out of the cave. They would go and attack the person. They would take everything that they have and leave them suffering. Leave them beaten up. That's exactly what happens to this man. That's the fate that he faced. There's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. They stripped him. They took everything he had both his possessions and probably his clothes too. They beat him, and then they left. Whenever they left, this man was lying on the side of the road half dead. And so the story continues in verse 31. By chance, it just so happened that there was a priest going down the road. Now pause. If you were in this situation, isn't that who you would want to see? The priest is God's servant. He works in the temple every single day serving God and serving other people. He is the very height of piety and love and holiness and good works. If you were in this situation and a priest was coming, that's who you would want to see. But then you notice what happened. The priest was going down the road and when he saw the man lying on the side of the road half dead, bloodied and beaten up, He got as far as he could on the other side. Passed by. What about verse 32? In the same way, just by chance, it just so happened that there was a Levite coming down the road. He came to the place where the man was. Levites were also religious leaders back in this time. The priesthood of the Old Testament came from the Levitical tribe. It came from the tribe of Levi. So here's a real, uh, another really religious person. Whenever he sees this man lying half dead on the side of the road, surely he's going to help. Well, no, the Bible says when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Two religious individuals. Two individuals who would have been looked up to and held up as being holy and righteous. They see somebody who's suffering. They see somebody who's in distress. And they keep walking. But then in verse 33, remember who Jesus is speaking to. 
He's speaking to a lawyer who's looking to justify himself in loving only people who are like him. Jesus says in verse 33, but a Samaritan. Those words would have caught everybody's attention back in this time. Everybody would have looked up at Jesus with a look of disgust on their face. John chapter 4 tells us that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans. They looked down on Samaritans. They were filthy. They were disgusting. They were half-breeds. They're the, most, they're the least respected people group in the entire world to the Jews. Here comes this filthy Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to the place where the man was. And as Jesus is telling this story, no doubt his audience thought, well, that Samaritan's going to keep walking too. I mean, there's no way that a priest would pass him up and then a Levite would pass him up, but a Samaritan's going to help. There's no way a Samaritan would do something like that. They're so terrible. Well, no, this Samaritan, when he saw the man, the Bible says he had compassion. He saw this man in distress and he felt pity. His heart was moved with compassion. And that's really the difference between him and the two religious officials, isn't it? The priest and the Levite did not feel compassion. They kept walking. The Samaritan feels compassion. He sees somebody else who's hurting. And it makes him hurt. He has pity on this individual. So he does something about it. Verses 34 and 35 mention seven different things that this Samaritan did on behalf of this man who's lying half dead on the side of the road. He goes above and beyond to meet this man's needs. He doesn't just think about the bare minimum. He doesn't just think about, oh, what do I have to do to be okay? He goes above and beyond to serve this man and he uses his time, his efforts, and his resources as a tool to meet his needs. Notice in verse 34, the Bible says he went to him. Well, that's already something else that nobody else has done. Everybody else has passed by on the other side of the road. Here, the Samaritan approaches this man and he bound up his wounds. More than likely, he tore up his own clothes to make bandages for this man's wounds. He poured on the wounds oil, which would have soothed them and, and taken the pain away just a little bit. He poured on his wounds wine, which would have disinfected the wounds. Then he set him on his own animal. What does that mean for the Samaritan? That means wherever they go, the Samaritan's going to be walking now. Because he's taken the man and sat him on his own animal. Now wherever they go, the Samaritan's going to be on foot. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and spent the night with him. He spent the entire night there with this man and took care of him, met his needs. He woke up early the next day in verse 35 and went to the innkeeper, gave him two denarii, which was two days' wages. You work all day every day for two days, and that's how much money you would have, two denarii. He gives that money to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. End of verse 34, the Samaritan was taking care of him, but in verse 35, the Samaritan has to leave, has to get back on his journey. So he says, I want you to take care of him. And if you need to buy anything for him, use this money. Use this two denarii. And if you have to spend anything else, if you have to spend above two denarii, doesn't matter how much it is, let me know. The next time I come back, I'll pay you for that. That's amazing, isn't it? He goes above and beyond to meet the needs of this individual who he doesn't know from Adam. 
So Jesus is talking to this lawyer. He's presenting this parable to this expert of the Old Testament law who wants to justify his own prejudices. He asks the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks in verse 36, he says, which one of these three? You got three options. You got the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You want to ask me who's my neighbor? You want to try to limit this? Okay, now you tell me. You have two religious officials and you have a dirty, filthy Samaritan. Which one of them was a neighbor? He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Through gritted teeth, the lawyer responded in verse 37, the one who showed him what? Mercy. What did the good Samaritan do in this parable? He showed mercy. What was the good Samaritan in this parable? Go back to Matthew 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. The Samaritan is an example, not only to this lawyer, but also to us, of what mercy looks like. The, law, the good Samaritan, rather, is an example of what it looks like to be merciful to other people. He is the one who showed mercy. So now let's go back to this question that we asked just a few minutes ago. What does being merciful mean? What does it look like to extend mercy to people as we live our lives on a daily basis? Using the Samaritan as an example. Thinking about the one who showed mercy. I want to share three ideas with you. Number one, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan, being merciful means that, means that we're going to see people's distress. We're going to see people when they're hurting. We're going to see the pain that exists in their hearts and the pain that exists in their lives. If you go back to Luke chapter 10 and you look at verse 31, verse 32, and verse 33, all three of those individuals, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, all three of them saw this man lying half dead on the side of the road. I want to suggest to you that the Samaritan was the only one who truly saw his pain. The Samaritan was the only one who truly saw his distress. They all saw him, but the Samaritan was the only one who really saw him. Oh yeah, the other two saw him with their physical eyes. The priest and the Levite, they saw the man lying half dead on the side of the road, but they viewed him as an inconvenience. We have somewhere to go, and it's going to be super inconvenient for me to help this person. I've I got to get to where I'm going. Perhaps they viewed this man as a waste of time. Perhaps they viewed this man as, as unworthy of their help. Well, we are so great, and we're so holy, and we're so righteous, we wouldn't help someone laying on, on the side of the road half dead. We're too good for that. Somebody else can do that. Perhaps they saw this man as a danger, and they kept walking. The Samaritan, on the other hand, saw his distress, saw his pain, saw his difficulty. All three saw him, but the Samaritan was the only one who truly saw him. If we're going to be merciful, that means we're going to see people's distress. We're going to see the pain in their hearts. How often do we get caught up in our own lives that we don't even see what other people are going through? How often do we get so caught up in the busyness of the moment that we don't even notice when people right in front of us are hurting? Maybe even people who are close 
to us. But then maybe sometimes we're like the priest and the Levite. We see people lying half dead on the side of the road. We see the distress that they're going through, but we view them as an inconvenience. We view them as a waste of time. They're not worthy of my help. That person might be a danger to me. They might take advantage of me. As Christians, if we're going to be merciful, blessed are the merciful, we have to see people when they're hurting. Now, some people do a really good job of hiding it. Some people do a really good job of hiding what they're going through. But if you'll be intentional about this, if you'll look through the eyes, not only of the Good Samaritan, but if you'll take a second to look through the eyes of Jesus, you will see people who are hurting. You will see people who are in distress. So what do we do then? Well, according to this parable, if we're going to be merciful, that means we should, number two, respond inwardly with compassion. We said that's what sets apart the Samaritan from the priest and the Levite. That's what makes him different. That's what makes him the centerpiece of this story. That's why we know him. We talk about being the good Samaritan. We use that in our everyday vocabulary. He felt compassion when he saw this man in distress and nobody else did. When he saw the man in distress, his heart was moved. His heart was moved with compassion and pity. When he saw this man in distress and saw him hurting, it made him hurt and caused him to do something about it. It reminds me of a story about Abraham Lincoln. Towards the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was making a speech from the balcony of the White House. And whenever he finished his speech, one of the senators from Illinois cried out, what are we going to do with these rebels whenever the war is finally over? The whole crowd started to cry out, hang them, hang them, hang them. It was Tad Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, only 11 years old at the time. He walked up to his dad and pulled on his pants and said, Dad, no, please don't hang them. Instead, hang on to them. There's a difference there, isn't it? Do our hearts ever become hard? Whenever we see people's distress, especially people who have hurt us, oftentimes we're like that crowd that Abraham Lincoln was speaking to. We want them to be hanged. We want them to suffer. We want them to deal with consequences. As Christians, we shouldn't be the ones who cry out, hang them. As Christians, we should be the ones who cry out, hang on to them. There's a difference. When we see people in distress, our hearts should be moved. So often we have an attitude that says, if it's not me, if it's not my family, if it's not my friends, I don't really care. If it doesn't impact me, it's not going to be a big deal to me. Jesus says when we see people's distress, our hearts should be moved with compassion. When we see other people hurting, it should cause us to hurt. We see people's distress. We respond inwardly with compassion. But can I tell you, feelings never helped anybody. Feeling bad for someone, your heart being moved with compassion, it never met somebody's needs. Number three, we have to respond externally with relief. If we're going to be merciful, if we're going to do what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 and verse 7, blessed are the merciful. You can see the stepstones in this story. The Samaritan sees the man in distress. When he sees the man in distress, he first responds inwardly with compassion. And because he responds inwardly with compassion, 
He responds externally with relief. And it wasn't just about meeting the bare minimum. He didn't throw a $20 bill at him and say, you know, I, I hope that helps. He didn't think, ask himself the question, what is the absolute least that I can do for this man and still end up helping him? No, instead, he goes above and beyond and uses everything that he has, his time, his efforts, his resources as a tool to serve this man in distress. And that's what we have to do. That's what being merciful means. Whenever we see people hurting and we feel compassion, when our hearts are moved for those people, we have to respond externally with relief. We have to use what we have, our time, our efforts, our resources, to meet the needs of others. I love how Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4, or rather Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 29. Paul, Paul says there that the thief is to no longer steal, but instead he is to labor with his hands. Do you know why? Why do you wake up and go to work every single day? So that I can provide for my family? so that I can build up my savings account, so that I can buy the things that I want, while none of those things are necessarily evil in and of themselves. It's not what Paul says in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor with his own hands so that he might have something to what? To share with those who are in need. Why do you get up and go to work every single day? Paul says, it's so that you can be merciful. So that when you see people in distress and you respond inwardly with compassion, you can respond externally with relief. Blessed are the what? The merciful. Blessed are those who see people's distress. Blessed are those who respond inwardly with compassion. Blessed are those who respond externally with relief. Then I want to ask one more question as we close. How are the merciful blessed? How does that kind of lifestyle and, and that kind of thinking and those kind of interactions, how does that allow true blessing and happiness to flow into our lives? Well, go back to Matthew 5 and verse 7. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's the blessing. That's where the true happiness comes from. When we are merciful to others, God is going to be merciful to us. Going back to the Gospel of Matthew, five different times, Matthew records the same plea of different individuals as they fall down at Jesus' feet. These are people who aren't doing this half-heartedly. No, they are falling down on their hands and knees. They are begging Jesus. They are pleading Jesus, have mercy. What are they asking? Jesus, I want you to see my distress. I want you to see the difficulty that I'm going through. Jesus, I'm begging you to feel compassion for me. To allow your heart to be moved with pity. And then when you allow your heart to be moved with pity, I'm asking for relief. You're the only one who can give me the relief that my soul is searching for. And that's why I'm here on my hands and knees. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that's the same request that we make to Jesus. That's the same plea that we offer at His feet. Jesus I'm asking you to see me. I want you to see the pain in my heart. I'm asking you to see what's going on around me. The storm that's raging in my life. Jesus, I'm asking you to have compassion on me. I know I don't deserve it. 
but I'm asking for your heart to be moved with pity and compassion when you see the difficulty that I'm going through. And Jesus, when you feel compassion for me, could you please help me? Could you please give me your mercy? A mercy to me, a sinner. Like Luke records over in Luke, the 18th chapter, the prayer of the tax collector. Jesus, I'm asking you to grant me relief that only you can give. Got some good news. That's exactly what Jesus offers to us. Isn't that amazing? Jesus sees our distress. When you go through something difficult in life, when you have pain in your heart that perhaps nobody else knows about, Jesus knows about it. Jesus sees it. Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to our hurt. Jesus is not ignorant of the anxieties that we have and the difficulties that we're going through. No, Jesus sees us in our distress. And when He sees us in our distress, He feels compassion for us. A person like me, a person like you, who have gone against Him, who have made wrong decisions, who have intentionally done things that are against His will for our lives, Jesus looks at our distress and His heart is moved with pity whenever He sees it. And because His heart is moved with pity, He grants to us the peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4 and verse 7. He gives to us the relief that only He can give. Isn't that amazing? But there's a condition here. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. If we're going to receive mercy from Jesus... We have to be willing to extend mercy to others. If we want Jesus to see our distress, we have to see others' distress. If we want Jesus to feel compassion for us, we need to work on feeling compassion for others. If we want Jesus to grant us relief, well, we have to be willing to grant others relief. We have to soften our hearts. We have to allow ourselves to be emotionally impacted by the hurt in other people's lives and whenever we feel that way, we're not going to have any other choice but to use everything that we have to go above and beyond to meet people's needs. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I want to challenge you this week to be intentional about that. I want to challenge you this week to be intentional, to look through the eyes of Jesus and to see people's distress. See people who are hurting. If, if you'll take the time to look, you'll, you'll see it. It'll be there. And when you see people's distress, don't turn the other way. Allow your heart to be moved. Moved with compassion and pity and love. And when your heart is moved with compassion, respond externally with relief. Do all that you can to meet that person's needs. What would it look like? What kind of difference would all of us make if we individually committed ourselves to being merciful? Then and only then will we be able to receive mercy from Jesus. So this morning, if we can help you on either side of that, if we can help you to receive mercy from Jesus, or if we can help you to extend mercy to others, here's a time for that as together we stand and sing our invitation song.